for the Indians. One run on, let's see, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. You can't say goddamn on the air. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. From the Gateway Lounge in Sioux Falls, it's Nobody's Listening Anyway. Here are your hosts, John Gaskins and Matt Zimmer. Number seven, with six, goes down. Now Thunic for the win! Got it! With three and a half seconds to go. Here's Thompson. Can she tie it up half court? No! South Dakota State upsets number 18. Gonzaga on a three-pointer from the right wing. Well, my goodness, Matt Zimmer picked an outstanding Sunday to miss a Minnesota Vikings game, albeit a win, another gong show. Just the third straight, straight-up clown show by the Vikings at home against an awful team. Yet here they are. They're in the playoffs. Well, they would be if they started the day with that extra spot at number seven. And they have a huge game against the Bucks to try to move past Tom Brady's crew this upcoming Sunday. And uh, and meanwhile, Matt was just watching the Jackrabbit women, a, a thing of beauty as they have been, as have the Jackrabbit men all season long. We're going to break form here on Nobody's Listening Anyway and start with the Jackrabbits in a moment because it, we have something to cheer about in this state, in this neck of the woods. It's been a shitty sports season for a lot of reasons, mainly COVID. But Zim, I, I, I asked you before we started rolling, if you heard the news about Tom Brady's house in Boston, and you said you had not. So we're recording at four in the afternoon. Tom Brady's house in Boston got broken into. Uh, think about this. He doesn't, you know, they, he still owns the place, but he and Giselle, of course, live in Florida. And it's football season for the Bucks anyway, but apparently he still owns a home in Boston. And a dude, a 34-year-old guy who has been classified as homeless, uh, pleaded not guilty to charges of breaking and entering, but he was found as alarms went off in the house at 5.55 a.m. today, just kind of lying on the, a couch in Tom Brady's basement. <laughs> so, you know, if you're, if, 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 if times are tough for everybody, and unfortunately a lot more people are getting evicted and homeless these days, if, you, if you're going to find a place to chill for a while, you figure Tom Brady's not in... He's not in town. I'll just go. Why not go for the go, go for the gold and go to Tom Brady's house? <laughs> and I suppose got, if, he, if he didn't like actually steal anything, it just just was chilling, you know. Yeah. He probably he probably won't get in that much trouble, right? You know, so he probably figured it was worth it. Like I'll 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 take a breaking and entering <laughs> charge just to be able to crash at Tom Brady's house for a night. Uh, I, I can see the logic there. Yeah. So th- this uh, this. Begs me to ask a question, uh, because both of you and I, every now and then, have interesting stories of our youth to tell. What's the What's the weirdest place you've ever ended up sleeping? Like you just kind of <laughs> stumbled into somewhere, or, or, or I, I, I could ask you that, because I've got the answer, which also coincides with the question: Have you ever done this? Have you ever had nowhere to sleep for a night, and didn't want to pay for a hotel or motel, and? Uh, and slept somewhere on like somebody's unoccupied place. Um, I mean, probably, you know, I like, like someone I like barely know you mean, or just like I was drunk at somebody's house and didn't want to go anywhere. So I just crashed on the couch. Well, or... I guess I could ask if you've ended up like that one dude for me, Ryan Rosillo, who was hopped up on drugs a couple of years ago and mistook somebody else's house for his own house. Maybe in college, your, your dorm room for somebody else's dorm room. I, I don't know. Uh, like you just, maybe it was an accident that you ended up sleeping or trying to sleep somewhere late at night. I mean, I can think of one example that is so bad and so embarrassing. I'm not even going to tell you. Okay. Uh, but otherwise, uh, you know, I don't, I never did the wake up in the wrong person's house. I mean, you know, I probably went home with some people I'm less than proud of having done, but you don't regret that until the next morning. So you know, I, I was always safe. Yeah. Well, yes, of course. And we've all got our stories about waking up in somebody else's bed and not being able to remember how you got there and <laughs> regretting that you got there. But OK, so I uh, when I was about 24, I was living in Oregon. I was just out of college and I went up one weekend to cover. Um, I was living in Medford, which is about three hours away from Eugene, which is where the University of Oregon was. I went to a, an Oregon game 
to, uh, I'm pretty sure, cover it. I don't think I ever went attended a game I wasn't quote-unquote covering. And, uh, but I never got a hotel room, and I, I just figured I'm going to go uh, hang out at the Kappa Sigma house. I was, a, I, was a, I was in a fraternity in college, and there's this thing where you can, you, you, you usually assume, I'll go to the same fraternity uh, that I was in, in my school, and I could go travel and be, uh, you know, welcomed and maybe party with, at the very least stay at that same fraternity's house in another college town, another college campus. And you know, sometimes we'd go down on road trips and party with that, with those guys um, when I was in college, like for Husker football games, like when they played Missouri or Oklahoma, stuff like that. But I was out in Oregon. I'd already graduated. And I thought, I'm just going to go. I'm 24. I'm just going to go uh, crash at the at the Kappa Sig house. And uh, all I got to do, you know, I usually want to call these guys ahead of time. And I think I tried to call them ahead of time. And this was with people had landlines and stuff. Nobody answered. This is already one of the worst ideas I've ever heard. So Continue your story. But I yeah, go to the house. I go to the house and I discover nobody's there. And then I under, then, then it's clear that the house is abandoned. Like it's not, there's nobody, they must've gotten thrown off campus or something. <laughs> so, but there's, either a door was open or, or a window was open. So I just, and there was a bed and a mattress. So I slept there for an evening. <laughs> so it was abandoned. Yes. Abandoned. I slept in an abandoned house for a night. Well, that actually turns out to be a way better story. The idea that you thought it would sound at all appealing to like frat guys are the worst to begin with. Then you <laughs> want it to be a frat of guys you've never met. You're just like, <laughs> Hey, I'm a guy from somewhere else. Yes. Can I hang out with you guys. Like you're uh, I can't believe that sounded attractive to you, but I'm glad that no one was there and you had a safe night in an it, abandoned. It house. wasn't really attractive. I was just really lazy and, and cheap and didn't want to pay for a hotel room. But um, like I went to Cal Berkeley one year, I think it was somewhere around the same time. And like, there was nothing really going on. There was 10 people in the house and they, they, they weren't really that exciting, but uh, you know, they let me sleep in a room. So anyway, that's uh, this may or may not be cut from the, uh, from the podcast this week. <laughs> Sorry for those last three or four minutes of everybody's time, but I wasn't that scared. It was just, you know, I was a little scared. It was I'm not saying scared, just like that sounds awful. Like, hanging, I, who wants to go party with a bunch of frat guys they've never met? That sounds terrible. <laughs> There's yeah, the unfortunate thing was sometimes you assume, oh, well, we're cool, so they'll be cool in Columbia, Missouri. Or you weren't cool either. Uh, yeah, I know that. Yes, <laughs> I know. You can go ahead and tell me why, because uh, I, I, frankly, I'm a little reluctant. I'm 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 opening myself up a little bit here. I don't usually like to talk about the frat days. I liked the fraternity I was in. Uh, I partly had a hand in deciding who was in it um, because it got kicked off campus and blah blah blah. But like you know, so I tried to make sure I didn't surround myself with a bunch of. Uh, classic awful asshole frat boys i was not in that type of house i don't think i knew you were a frat guy well see there you go and would you so does it surprise you that i am does it break any sort of myths no it's just oh okay does it make you think less of me not really okay (laughs) (laughs) well it wasn't really possible so whatever i guess i had nothing to lose here all right um so uh the uh, let let's let's stay in college here. Uh, let's uh, you know the Vikings are kind of a they have a new exciting disaster every week, but that's always fun, interesting to talk about. Sometimes fun, but uh, how about it? How about teams that actually play well? You're you're watching them up close. I'll I'll go I'll give the floor to you. Do you want to start with the the women who are now ranked number twenty two after beating a second top twenty opponent in their first three games uh, in eight days, or with the men who have now. Uh, impressively gone on the road to beat Iowa State and uh, the defending MVC tournament champs, Bradley? Well, I mean, I think there's always more interest in the men for obvious reasons, but what the women are doing is, I think, a little bit more impressive right now. You know, the men were, you know, basically a unanimous uh, pick to win the Summit League going into the season, so it's not too surprising that they're playing that well. Um, You know, beating Iowa State, uh, you know, it's been a couple years since they beat a major conference foe. So that's a big deal. And then Bradley is not a major conference team, but they're a two-time defending Missouri Valley champ. One of the best defensive teams in the country. They hung 88 points on them. Those are two really good wins back to back on the road in the same week. So that's a big deal. Um, But I still think what the women are doing right now, you know, getting into the top 25, all three of their wins are against, you know, major opponents. Um, That's just, you know, you could not possibly have envisioned, a better start for them. I mean, we, you know, you looked at the schedule and said, okay, geez, I go, 
Iowa State, Creighton, Gonzaga right off the bat. You know those are going to be three really good opponents, but there's a, a very good likelihood they're going to be one and two coming out of those three games. You know, may, maybe even if they're lucky. Creighton, I think, is down a little bit this year, which was obvious when they beat them pretty soundly. But, you know, two ranked teams, just because you're at home, you don't automatically assume you're going to win those. Um, and, you know, not that anyone had low expectations for the Jacks this year by any means. Um, but last year they were kind of ordinary, at least compared to their own standards. And obviously, you know, not having Maya Sellen was a big part of that. And you're already trying to replace Macy Miller and Madison Giebert. I mean, by the end of the year, they're just kind of, you know, they, they just didn't have enough firepower, really. Still gave USD a hell of a run in the conference championship game. But I think we all thought, even with the players that USD lost, that they were probably going to be a little bit stronger coming back this year. Um, but now, geez, you know, we all knew Maya Sellen was a good player and that she had a chance to be a great player, but she was always always hurt and it was starting to kind of feel like she was never going to be fully healthy. And there were even some whispers about her maybe just saying the hell with it and either calling it a career or maybe not accepting the, the medical red, not applying for the medical red shirt. She ended up getting just kind of playing out her career while well, she got that medical hardship. So she's still only a junior and she's playing at a, a Macy Miller level right now. And then you throw in uh, the point guard they brought in from Colgate, the grad transfer, Haley Greer, you know, she averaged eight points a game at Colgate, so I don't think there were super high expectations. She goes out, scores 20 points in her Jacks debut. Then the other day against Gonzaga had 10 assists. She looks like an impact player. So you add two legit impact players to a team that was already pretty good. Um, all of a sudden, it looks like SDSU, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens when they have to actually play USD and, and they go head-to-head. And, you know, the Coyotes haven't exactly stunk it up so far, given that they almost beat Gonzaga and almost – well, I shouldn't say almost beat – but played well against the number one team in the country. Um, it's, it's probably going to be a, a dogfight between those two again. Uh, but SDSU, I think, is early on looking like maybe they're a little bit stronger than we thought they were going to be. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it has to make you wonder what the old Summit League race is going to look like once again between these two teams. The Coyotes just, just bloodied up Lipscomb yesterday. Uh, which I have no idea if that was expected or not, but you know, unlike the Vikings, the at least the USD women can can bludgeon really bad teams from the get go. That's always the mark of what you'd expect to be a really good team. When I when I go, it, this is a much broader question. Uh, when I when you look at the starts to the SDSU men and women's seasons, and then you look at the what five NCAA tournament appearances in eight years for the men. Uh, and God, how many now for the women, like nine and 12 years or something like that. Uh, the beat just keeps going on and on and on. What's the, what's the biggest reason for this? Why is the sun always shining on jackrabbit hoops? And by the way, it seems awfully rare that you have both any, any college at any level where the men's and women's teams are this good, sometimes this dominant at the same time. Well, on the women's side, I mean, it's obviously kind of a cultural regional thing. I mean, you could, it's kind of obvious now that, you know, the SDSU, that, that first year being tournament eligible in Division One, they still had players that had been recruited to play Division Two, and they dominated. You know, they almost made the Sweet 16. Uh, US, you know, they won a national championship in their last year in Division II. Uh, USD was a national runner-up one of their final years in Division Two. It's obvious that, you know, NCC women's basketball, as we knew it back in the late 90s, early 2000s, was comparable to mid-major division one. You know, there wasn't a big difference. So it was pretty easy for those teams to make that transition. And Aaron Johnson certainly deserves a ton of credit for keeping that going and kind of building that into a well-oiled machine. Um, you just expect them to be at minimum a 23 win team every year. That's going to probably be in the NCAA tournament. And if they're not, it's only going to be because going to be because USD beat them out because they've quickly become, you know, on that same level you know, to the credit of several coaches, starting with Chad Lavin and all the ones that have come since him and, and built it up and kept it going. And, you know, I don't see, I don't see that slowing down anytime soon. Uh, especially when the women can do some things that the men can't, i.e. get Iowa state to come to their place, get Gonzaga to come to their place. You'll never see that on the men's side, you know, uh, USDB, they were ranked what 11th last year. I mean, the, the, no matter how good any of the summit league men's teams ever get, uh, they're not going to be on that level. You're not going to see them approaching the top 10 of the top 25 poll or getting, you know, power five teams to come to frost arena or the SCSC. So it's a little bit of a different game uh, on the men's side. SDSU has just, you know, kind of found a good formula and it took him a long time. You know, Scott Nagy almost got fired and there were times throughout his tenure where no one would have, I think, complained if he did get fired. 
but the Jacks were really, really patient with him. Uh, they finally got a, a program-changing player in there, and Nate Walters got an NCAA tournament bid, and were just able to build on it since then. And uh, you know, I think if Scott had stayed at SDSU, I think the Jacks would continue to be doing what they're doing because he's gone on to Wright State and done well. And uh, you know, none of the things that have happened after Scott left um, have been a you know a great departure from what he did. Scott Nagy recruited Mike Dom. You know, it's easy to forget he was essentially. You know, he kind of felt like he was T.J. Otzelberger's player, but it was Scott and his staff that brought him in. And obviously having a, a player like Mike, you know, put a program on another level nationally. And, you know, they, they never did win a tournament game throughout Mike's career. But just, um, you know, being a 20, 25 win team every year and, and, and they did get some wins against some quality teams and Mike's individual exploits and, you know, 3000 points, all that kind of stuff that gets a lot of attention. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of the recruits they brought in the last couple of years, whether they were under TJ or now under uh, Eric Henderson, when I, you know, when I usually talk to them after they commit and they're, yeah, Mike Dom, I saw him on TV, Mike Dom, Mike Dom, you know, I saw him in the NCAA tournament. Uh, that's a big deal. And, you know, just this uh, couple weeks ago, they had three games in a row on national television with that uh, Bad Boy Moores classic coming here to Sioux Falls. So obviously, it, like I said, it's not on the same level nationally that the women are. Um, but that men's program has kind of made a name for itself as a mid-major program. And, you know, last year, everyone kind of thought they were going to take a step back. They sort of did. They didn't end up getting the NCAA tournament. But, geez, they won the league with essentially a bunch of freshmen. And now all those guys are a year older and they look loaded right now. And, like, I think everyone's – I've been getting all sorts of tweets and texts from Jacks fans saying, like, boy, I sure hope the pandemic doesn't wipe out the tournament because it looks like this is a team that could do something. Yeah. Well, Okay. I want to get into the differences of why the, the you'll never see a men's team from South Dakota being ranked in the top 15 like both the Jackrabbit men, uh, women's and Coyote women have at some point in the last 10, 12 years, uh, and, and why they can get Iowa State and teams like that, big power five teams, to their gyms while the men can't. But I want to set that aside for what you said about Nagy and the Jackrabbit men. I mean, the women have had it easy partly because Eric Aaron Johnston's just stayed there the whole time. I mean, he won a national title. They obviously picked the right replacement for, what was it, Nancy Nieber? Nieber. Nieber, thank you. Sorry. And uh, you sound like somebody who's been there for a while now. And uh, how ridiculous I would mispronounce the name. I am sorry, Nancy. <laughs> I wasn't there. I, sorry. I just, I just ran into Nancy yesterday before the game. We had a long conversation about the twins. So she'd be offended if she heard you mispronounce I, her name. She, uh, yes. And, I've, and I have said, I've seen her and said hi to her a thousand times. And well, I don't know, probably 10 in my life at Frost Arena. She's always there. She's yes. always there. Uh, but, uh, I'm kidding. She would not be offended. Relax. No, she doesn't seem like the type who would care. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, she's a, le- she, I mean, she's, she's a legend, right? Kind of a legend? Yes. They were really yes. good, and, and uh, they replaced her with the and, – and Johnston was on her staff. Was he on her staff? Yes. Okay, and, and they, they just get – so that was the right move, obviously. I believe he was still in his 20s when he got yeah. the job. Yeah, and Nagy was in his 20s when he got the job. Pretty remarkable. And they both started this amazing run for both Jackrabbit men's and women's basketball. Of course, Johnston almost left for Green Bay uh, 10, 11, 12 years ago and uh, decided to come and fly back home. It still has never left. Uh, you've said in the past that part of the reason is because it's hard to find Power 5 gigs that are given to male head coaches, which is uh, another interesting topic. But, uh, you know, so you, you do the Justin Sell does the easy thing, obviously, and just keeps Aaron Johnston happy, and there you go. With the men, though, Justin Sell three times. I just want to – Justin Sell got there in 2009, the athletic director. This is, uh, this is what Scott Nagy was coming off of when Justin Sell arrived. And, of course, they made the transition. They were 27-7. Their last year, uh, SDSU men of Division Two. In fact, Nagy had won 20 or more games for his last mm, th- six or so years there. In fact, the SDSU men had been, whew, I mean, they were just great for a long time as, as I look at it. But, um, uh, but then once they get to Division One, 2004, start the, that netherworld dark years transition. They go 10 and 18, 9 and 20, 6 and 24, 8 and 21, 13 and 20. Those were five years under Nagy before Sell got there. A lot of new athletic directors would go, you know, maybe do their research and try to understand why it was so hard those first five years in Division One. But, you know, would probably go, okay, it's time for us to bring in a Division One coach. This is just, it's, it's time. I, and, I, and most ADs want to bring in their new guy. Probably very few people would have blamed Justin Sell 
for getting for for getting rid of Scott Nagy, but he didn't. And you know, within a couple of years, they're going to the big dance, and and within three, well, within five, he's uh, twenty sixteen. He's there. He is. He's leaving for uh, another job, whatever it is, a half a million dollars a year. So. Uh, and and then he hits on Otzelberger to replace him when you could have, with a successful program, could have hired somebody in staff, a safe bet. And uh, instead he went with Otzelberger out of Iowa State, a first-time head coach. And then he hit it again by deciding to keeping it in Otzelberger's staff with Eric Henderson. So I think Justin Sell here deser- deserves a little credit to see, to for the, the train to keep rolling with Jackrabbit men's hoops. Yeah, there's no question about that. I mean, he's hit mostly home runs and all of his big hires, uh, not just basketball, really. But, um, you know, I think not to take any credit away from Justin, but I do think part of it was him just recognizing the culture when he got here. You know, this is not a, a, a university, a, a community that, you know, wants to get rid of people. You know, people there was like you said, if Nagy just judging on Nagy's record, you know, not too many people would have been like, well, why did he get fired? It's obvious why he got would have got fired, the record. But people were not, you know, clamoring for him to go. He was not, I mean, if he was on the hot seat, it was from the administration. It wasn't from the fans. Um, most people wanted to be loyal to him. Jack's fans still to this day get pissy when a coach leaves. There's a lot of fans have an uh, ill taste in their mouth about TJ Otzelberger bouncing after a few years. And if Hendo leaves in a couple of years, it might be the same thing. Um, I remember John Stiegelmeyer telling me a story when I did a long feature about him a couple of years ago about how when they first talked about going to Division One, they brought in these consultants to meet with the entire athletic department. And this guy got up and just said, here's the deal. If you go to Division One, your athletic director, your football coach and your men's basketball coach are all getting fired. Like just assume that's that's like the baseline where you start. And of course, Scott Nagy, John Stiegelmeyer kind of looked at each other like, oh, this sounds awesome. You know, and, and as it right. turned out, none of those things happened. Uh, Fred Oyen did not get fired. He quit eventually. Um, Justin Sell came in, did not fire John Stiglmeyer or Scott Nagy. Um, and there were chances to fire both of them. I mean, Stig never had a brutally bad season when they were making that transition, but they lost that home game to a division three team uh, one year. I think it was like Oh six or something started the year. Oh, and three or something. I mean, there was a lot of talk that he was going to get fired midweek, uh, you know, three weeks into the season. They ended up not doing that, and they finished that season on like a five or six game winning streak, and now here they are. Um, so, like I said, Justin definitely deserves credit for showing that patience, but not just showing the patience. I think also sort of reading the room, so to speak, you know, like recognizing the culture he had inherited and saying these are not fans, people that you know are looking for the, you know, the guy who's going to have the quick trigger finger and be bringing getting people rid of people and bringing people in left and right. Uh, and you've seen a lot of continuity and, you know, TJ left quicker, I think, than everyone thought. But I don't think that's because TJ was looking to bounce necessarily. I mean, he had an offer from freaking UNLV. Yeah. You know, that's a school that's won a national championship within the last 30 years. So, you know, that that isn't even necessarily that that TJ was looking to bounce. That was just too good of an offer to turn down. And, you know, I don't think you're going to see another Scott Nagy at, at coaching SDSU men's basketball who's going to be there for 20 years or whatever, you know, if Hendo's still there in 10 years, it's because he didn't do as well as he wanted to. If he keeps going on the trajectory he's on, he's probably going to get a better job eventually too. And uh, I think if you're SDSU, an SDSU fan, um, you kind of have to make peace with that and understand that that's going to be the price of success at this level. Um, And, you know, even, you know, if Aaron Johnson ends up coaching at SDSU for 10 more years and then retiring, or if he does what Scott does and, and says, around the age of 50 that, you know, okay, if I don't go now, it's never going to happen. And he leaves, uh, whoever replaces AJ is probably not going to be someone who's going to come in there and coach for 15, 20 years. You know, that's just those basketball programs and football programs, frankly, have reached a level now where Scott Nagy, John Stiglmeyer, Aaron Johnston, those guys are probably going to be the last of their kind. Yeah. Uh, wow. There's, there's a lot to chew on there uh, with, and I'm sure Jack's fans understand the money part of this, right? I mean, they understand, the money and longer term contracts that uh, these these coaches are able to get I at think bigger so. places. Like when, when, well, when Nagy left for Wright State, um, the rumor started circulating before it became official. And I was one of the first people to say, yeah, I don't see him taking that job because that's not even really a step up. Is Wright State a better program than SDSU? No, I would argue it's not even as good of a program as SDSU. But they don't have football, so they can pay more money. As soon as word got out of what the terms of the contract being offered was. Then it was like, Oh wait, never mind. 
uh, you know, they were offering him half a million dollars a year when SDSU was paying him barely over 200. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, when they brought in TJ, they were like, Hey, we have to start paying our coaches more. We're not gonna be able to keep them. But I think TJ Hendo, they're in the 300 range somewhere. Uh, If you have a football program that cuts into the budget a little bit and, you know, so yeah, money's going to be a part of it too. Um, John Stiglmeyer makes a good salary, but he obviously worked for less money than, you know, a lot of other coaches would because of, you know, how his career has played out and where he's at in his life and his career. Uh, whenever Stig hangs him up, uh, you know, if they want to promote from within, that might be one thing, but if they want to bring in, you know, some hot shots from outside and I have no idea if that's what their plan would be, I, I kind of suspect it wouldn't. Uh, but if they did, they'd have to come up with a lot more money than they're paying John Stiglmeyer. Yeah. By, and by the way, <laughs> Uh, T.J. Altsenberger is making $1.1 million, and right. uh, if he makes it all five years, his final year will be $1.6, which would be more than five times what SDSU was paying him. So just anybody out there, just imagine. I can't believe anybody was mad that T.J. left when he left. That's absurd. Uh, I know we talked about it plenty at the time, but that's just absurd because uh, most people would leave for a job to make five times more than what they're making doing the same thing. Um, all right, so why is it? That because, uh, you know, you've been on this beat for what, five, six years now. Um, you've seen a lot of you've seen a lot of South Dakota State women's teams and we've seen USD women's teams now uh, be, be able to beat power five conference teams. Even the SDSU men's fifth power five win in six years. And not that really shocking. Also compounded with the Jacks were picked to win the summit and Iowa State's picked to finish near the bottom of the Big 12. Maybe they maybe you know, teams weren't that, you know, it's it's a big deal, but it's not a big deal. But why is it uh, that it, 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 it's usually much easier for uh, a women's team from around here to crack the top 20? And, and it might be a separate topic, but to also be able to get schools like Iowa State, Notre Dame a few years ago, a top five team, into their building, where the men rarely, if ever, will do either of those, accomplish either of those things. Well, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there because you're those are a few different questions that are sort of interrelated. You know, major programs just don't play road games at mid-major schools for the most part. I mean, that's kind of the deal on, right. on the men's on the men's side. They yes. just don't. And they largely don't have to. You know, if we ever, you know, who knows? Maybe the pandemic will change things enough to a degree that that starts happening. Uh, but until it does, it's just not going to happen. I mean, you, you ask Scott Nagy or TJ Otzelberger or Eric Henderson, but hey, are you going to get in? You know, could you ever get Minnesota to come here? I mean, they'll look like look at you like you just asked them if you could play point guard for them. That of course. Night. I mean, it's yeah, just, I... you know, that just doesn't happen. Um, why does it on the women's side? Yeah. Uh, there's not as much of a, a a difference, I think, between those power schools and the mid-majors. And also, um, you know, in men's basketball, there's always some level uh, of audience for the basketball. That isn't always the case on the women's side. And, you know, we've talked on your old show. I've written about it ad nauseum in the newspaper. Uh, we are in women's basketball country here. Um, you know, this part of the country cares more about women's basketball than a lot of other places do. Uh, the good news, if you care about women's basketball, is that's changing to some degree. A lot of the other parts of the country are finally starting to catch up. Uh, but throughout the 80s and 90s, and when we were still in the Division II era in this state, you know, we had those double headers for years and years in the NCC. And there were a lot of people who maybe didn't care about women's basketball early in their lives. But all those years of coming to those double headers and, you know, showing up at an hour before the men's game to catch the second half of the women's game or, or even just catch the end of it. That's what got a lot of people hooked, you know, seeing women's basketball, being exposed to it, seeing how high of the quality of play is. And again, like I said, a lot of those, even though we were in the division two era in those days, there wasn't probably a big difference between, you know, a a South Dakota state division two team and a mid major low level, even maybe a second division, big 10 team on the women's side. That's not the case on the men's side. There's a bigger difference. Um, so if you're a Notre Dame or a South Carolina or a Gonzaga or Iowa state or whatever, and you're looking, you you need some road games. You can't play all your non-conference games at home. Um, you're a little more willing to go to a place like Brookings or Vermillion, uh, because those teams aren't going to hurt your RPI or whatever, because those schools are, are much higher. You know, right now, SDSU's ranked USD's just outside the top 25. So it actually helps your schedule to go to those places. And also, you're probably, if you're, again, a, a Minnesota, an Iowa, whatever, and you're looking for non-conference games, a lot of the places you go, you're playing in an empty gym, you know? And I know right now the pandemic, you know, every kind of all bets are off, it's all different. But let, it, we're assuming we're in a, 
a normal world, you know, those schools can go to Brookings can go to Vermillion, uh, some other places around here and say, Hey, you know, there's going to be 1500, 2,500 people there. Well, if, if you get one of these big schools, you know, when Notre Dame played in Frost a few years ago, I think there were close to 4,000, you know, uh, a South Carolina, if that game, you know, if, if, if fans were allowed again, if it wasn't a pandemic, Pentagon probably would have been full, you know, so that, there's a lot of advantages that the women have in mid-major basketball that men don't, and they're taking advantage of them. So speaking of uh, the old North Central Conference days and the Pentagon, we get our 2020 version of the NCC Holiday Tournament, which used to be at the arena every year, in this Dakota Showcase Saturday yeah. through Sunday. Uh, is this both men's and women's or just men's? Just men. Okay. Again, and- because the men... The men's teams in the Summit League literally could not schedule any games in non-conference. Nobody wanted to play them, whereas the, w- the women didn't have as much difficulty. They were able to get some games. The Jacks do not have a home game until conference play. They set up this uh, Dakota Showcase because otherwise they would have played their entire non-conference schedule. It's still going to be all away from Frost Arena, but at least this way they get three games in their home state as opposed to just playing eight or ten or however many games, always traveling. Mm. And it's it's going to be North Dakota, North Dakota State, South Dakota, South Dakota State. Uh, what is it? Friday through Sunday, everybody plays. I think it's Thursday through Saturday. Thursday through Saturday. Everybody plays two games. And it looks like the Jacks are at 5 p.m. or later every night. Bidco um, is going to televise some of these things. So that's, that's, that's great. Um, and it's not going to count in league standings because, as you mentioned, this is to fill the void of a lack of non-conference games. And I asked Eric Henderson about this last week in, a, in an article and an audio in an interview that you could find at kwsn.com uh, that, about this not counting. And, you know, is this going to be like, are they going to not show their plays or show their best stuff, <laughs> put anything on film, blah, right. blah, blah. And uh, I, I can't, you know, he, he pretty much said, we all, we all know each other pretty well anyway. So, right. you know, these will just be good basketball games that won't count. Um, what are you, what are you expecting? Well, I mean, it should be cool because we look forward to those games all the time in the regular season. You know, our, our favorite game of the year usually is when USD and SDSU play each other. And when SDSU plays NDSU and when those two schools play each other. Um, so that'll be fun to get sort of a, a treat, you know, an extra, an extra series of, of rivalry games. Uh, the unfortunate thing, not unfortunate, but just like, I, you know, it's, it's not going to be the kind of thing that. Like, I hope no one gets the idea that, oh, maybe we'll do this every year. They won't. <laughs> this is not something that the, those coaches want to do. They'd prefer to be playing non-conference games against somebody else. You know, they, they did this out of desperation, essentially. Uh, that's a great question, you know, as far as, like, does that mean they're going to not show show their hand, so to speak? I tend to agree with Hendo. I think there's only so much you can hide from these guys. They know your personnel. You know, they've seen the film of the other non-conference games you played. You know, it, NDSU knows now that Baylor Shireman's a lot better player than he was last year. And they know that uh, uh, Charlie Easley, the backup point guard from Nebraska is a good player, all these different things. Um, So there aren't going to be any surprises to hold back necessarily, Uh, but it'll definitely be interesting to see just, does it feel like, you know, when SDSU and USD play each other in the regular season, there's an energy in the gym, whether it's at Frost arena or at the SCSC Uh, when the Jacks play the Bison, there's an energy in the arena, whether it's in Fargo or in Brookings, you can just, it just feels different. You just can sort of feel it in the air. And uh, it will be interesting to see if that is still there this week. Now, not having any fans in the stands is already going to take something away from that. Obviously Um, the, the crossover classic was fun, you know, West Virginia, number 15 team in the country coming in there, but it definitely didn't have that electricity in the air because there were no fans. So that's going to take away from it. But then also just, you know, What's the what's the intensity going to be like once the games start? Is it going to be the same as the Summit League game, or or will it kind of have the feel of uh, these? You know, this isn't quite the the black and blue slugfest that we're used to seeing uh, in February because it's you know the middle of December. Well, the the, the follow up there is are, are is it going to look a lot like the SDSU couple of SDSU women's home games when it when. We get into conference season. As far as fans go, it looks like there's a few hundred fans. Is that, is no, that determined said, for the rest of the they've, year? They've, they've said zero fans at the, the showcase in, at the Pentagon. No, I'm, ta- no, I, no. I'm, I'm talking about beyond this, uh, just oh, for sorry. the rest of the season. No problem. 
Um, well, from what I understand, this is the policy going forward. Um, I, you know, I don't know what it would take for things to change. I mean, I don't think we're all going to be vaccinated by January or February. So unless there's a major uh, curtailing in COVID cases and hospitalizations and deaths, and given that everyone's going to be getting together for the holiday soon, I think the opposite is probably what's going to happen. Uh, I, I think fans, we should consider ourselves lucky if we're able to continue going forward with the policy as is, which is essentially uh, season ticket holders and students only. Uh, I covered all three of the Jacks home games last week on the women's side. And it, it, it's, it's better than nothing. Uh, it doesn't feel like you're playing in an empty gym per se. Um, but there's probably been between two and 500 people give or to, I mean, they have, they've announced the attendance numbers at like 500, 600. Didn't look to me like they were that, there were that quite that many. So I don't know if they're just counting, you know, every season ticket holder that has paid for tickets it's looks like around three or 400 to me and uh, they're able to make some noise, you know, um, but certainly not what we're used to, you know, even, even when the Jacks play a, you know, a Wednesday night game against a team from the SWAC, you still got 1500 fans there, which is enough to make, to make noise, to make an impact. And then obviously when they have those big conference games against rivals, you got, you know, 2,500, 3,500, 4,000 and the place can be nuts. We're not going to have that. And it, it definitely makes a difference. Um, but having, you know, covered those games in the Pentagon when there's no fans in there, I can tell you that having three or 400 is better than zero. And frankly, I think it just, if you ever wondered what it's like to go to a basketball game at Western Illinois or IPFW, <laughs> uh, go to a Jacks yeah. game during the pandemic and that'll give you an idea. <laughs> well, except for, I'm, ge- I'm guessing it's still going to be a more enthusiastic crowd than, uh, than it is at Western Illinois, uh, with uh, just guessing it's pretty dead there, but, uh, yeah, I, I I wondered that while watching the highlights and knowing that you were there, and uh, you know, fortunately, Frost, the place you're covering games in, is a place that where uh, small and intimate, with you know, seats really close to the floor. Even though it appears fans aren't being allowed to sit very close to the floor, but you know what I mean. Things, uh, the the noise is well held in when you have smaller crowds. So. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if that has any impact on on the on the conference games when we get rolling there. It's uh, nobody's listening anyway. John Gaskins with Matt Zimmer of the Argus Leader. Uh, we are once again remotely talking to each other from each other's houses, uh, and we are not at the Gateway Lounge, but it is open, and it is not going to have its normal ugly sweater Christmas party this year in person. It will be online. The twelfth annual Ugly Sweater Party is a virtual affair. Uh, at 7 p.m., so have a good time there. And for more information, go to their Facebook page. And as always, uh, if you're not feeling comfortable going in and eating, uh, well, they have takeout there, and they have plenty of awesome food. I know Zim is missing his uh, beef chislick that he would get uh, when we went together every week. And uh, takeout's always available at the Gateway Lounge, West 41st Street in Sioux Falls. We appreciate them being a part of the podcast. They just haven't been a part of where we're doing the podcast lately. Okay, uh, the spe- speaking of no crowds and the lack of energy, the Minnesota Vikings yesterday, a third consecutive gong show. I call it a gong show just because they've looked like there have been so many plays and mistakes, coaching errors and, and player errors. Uh, it's just been a comedy of errors. Uh, and they go two and one against three of the worst teams in the NFL, all in a downward trend: Cowboys, Panthers, and Jags. And it was fitting that nobody on the Vikings celebrated after Dan Bailey's twenty-three yard field goal to win. It was just, <laughs> it was not. And Mike Zimmer said it: there was no ho- hooting and hollering in the locker room, which it usually is. NFL's a tough league, man. It's tough to win games, no matter how bad the other team is. But it looked so bad for the Vikings; they knew. There was very little to celebrate. I know you weren't watching much of this game. Uh, they have the Bucks and Tom Brady this week. Because the NFL is so parody-stricken, uh, the NFC is so kind of blah, here they are at 6-6. Six and six. They have the seventh and final playoff spot uh, over Arizona. If they started today, they can go past the Tom Brady and the Bucks if they win on Sunday. But, uh, look, I, I've got some grievances for Mike Zimmer specifically from this game. But what, what's... Uh, What's your take as a Vikings fan? Because you you've generally, I have felt over the years, but certainly this year, kind of like, hey, they're, they're if they're in the mix, great. I don't care how I don't care how nasty 
and and you know much of a mud bath it looks like and hey even though they they're stinking it up and looking like idiots sometimes you know, these games are close and exciting they're fun uh, how do you take it I'm glad they won because like I said I, I even if they just get in at eight and eight and are the last playoff seed and get blasted in the first round I'm cool with that I want to watch them in the playoffs see an extra game um, so I'm glad they won. Uh, I don't think Jacksonville is quite as terrible as their record. If you look at their schedule, they've played several. They've, you know, had a couple games they could have won against some decent teams. They're not terrible. Getting some credit. They're not quitting on their coach, I guess. But obviously, they weren't a very good team. And the Vikings once again came out and kind of acted disinterested or like they expected their opponent to just roll over for them. And they didn't. Uh, it's a good thing they found a way to win, I guess. And, you know, Dan Bailey having a really shitty game isn't the rest of the team's fault. It isn't Mike Zimmer's fault. It isn't even the special teams coach's fault. So, you know, if he makes those two extra points and that, you know, he doesn't even need to kick the 51 yard field goal at the end that he also missed. So that's part of it. Um, I don't know. I mean, there are positives, I guess, you know, I I was, uh, listen, I I watched the first quarter at home before I got in the car to drive to Brookings. Uh, I was listening on the radio. The Kirk cousins pick six was right. The last thing I heard before I walked inside, the radio guys made it sound like it wasn't even Kirk Cousins' fault. Like maybe Dalvin Cook didn't turn around. I don't know. Is that what yes. it looked like to you? I, I was listening. I Actually, I listened to most of this game. I was doing other things, but I was listening the whole time. Didn't watch much of it until late fourth quarter and into overtime. But, I, you know, I learned some things by listening. And, yeah, that's what they were saying, that Dalvin didn't turn around. I guess Kirk is a quarterback. I'm, I'm not going to try to play armchair quarterback, but – don't throw it. Don't throw it. And you you can see the linebacker just staring you down and ready to snag that ball in the air. Well, if if, if only Dan Bailey weren't the only problem here, I mean, it it shouldn't have been as close as it was. It shouldn't have come down to Dan Bailey. And uh, it, it, you know, that's, that's a common, that's just a common thing with the Vikings. Dan Bailey, by the way, uh, in his career as a Viking, which now we're, I think we're going on three years, uh, field goes 20 to 39 yards. He has missed one. But he's missed eight extra points, which are all uh, 35 yards. It's, it's baffling. But uh, it, there, you know, we you, you mentioned the pick six. Uh, f- first play of the fourth quarter, second play of the fourth quarter, Cousins and Cook can't execute a simple handoff. One yard from the goal line, Vikings fumble. That takes away seven points. They get two back on the safety. Uh, you, I mean, we had uh, seven punts. And with with the Vikings and like five on their first six drives. This here's here's where the problem was. Is you are right, Jacksonville might not be that bad, but they had one of the NFL's worst pass defenses, fourth worst statistically passing yards per game given up. And I understand Mike Zimmer uh, is a defensive minded coach, and even more than big games like against Tom Brady and the Bucks, where you're expecting a healthy dose of Dalvin Cook, hopefully to get some first downs. Only throw when you need to, so you can just keep the ball out of that Bucks offense hands. I get that to be the formula you need when you're a flawed Vikings team and he has a bad defense. But uh, yesterday, you know, it just seems like, he, again, he reminds me of Bo Pelini in so many ways where they're not really concerned about blowing out and knocking out a really bad team and, and, and maybe lighting them up. Uh, early and getting out of there. It's more like, let's not show too many. I, I, I'm hoping they were just not showing too many cards with their offense because they just decided to plug and chug the same formula. Let's let's just beat the hell out of Dalvin Cook all game and see if he gets it. If he doesn't, we'll punt, and they've got a bad offense and a backup quarterback. That wasn't what you do yesterday. Uh, they, the, the Jaguars have terrible cornerbacks, a bad pass defense, and they threw to Justin Jefferson twice in the first half. Uh, they punted on five of their six first-half possessions. Uh, and Pete Bursich on that radio, this is partly why I'm saying this, is because Bursich was, you know, he's not as big of a homer as Paul Allen, but he's begging for it. Like, it's just, you know, it's just a slight grumble at first, but uh, as soon as Cousins threw the pick six, he's like, good God. He, it's man-to-man coverage on Jefferson and Thielen, two of the best right. receivers in the NFL. Jefferson's a star. What are they doing? Continuing to pound Dalvin Cook and uh, to try to throw these little dinks and dunks to, to Thielen, which I think Cousins just has this Adam Thielen syndrome, especially early in games. It's just, you know, where's number 19? And they finally got Jefferson involved. But outside of a 40-yard catch on a touchdown drive and a 20-yard touchdown catch, both by Jefferson, the longest pass Kirk Cousins completed was 12 yards against a terrible 
pass defense. They could have bombarded the Jags from the start and gotten out of there, and Dalvin Cook wouldn't have needed to have 38 touches when he was already hobbling coming into the game, and they're going to need a steady, healthy diet of him against the Bucs and down the stretch of this season. So that's that's the problem I have. And, I, you know, people can blame Kubiak. I think it's Zimmer. I think Zimmer has a big stranglehold on this offense. It's it's quite obvious. He did on that he did on that uh, on that overtime drive where after a couple hey downfield passes opens up the run game for Dalvin. <laughs> he consistently just it's like Kurt Russell in a Miracle on Ice with the Herb Brooks that scene after one of their games again. again! again. It's just like a Dalvin Cook again. Dalvin again. Are we gonna bring Dan Bailey out to kick a thirty yarder? Nope. Nope. We're gonna score. Fucking touchdown. Fuck it. <laughs> Dalvin, Dalvin, Dalvin. Like, just, okay, let's just risk him getting hurt and fumbling the ball in overtime against the Jags over and over again because you hate, you just don't trust quarterbacks, even though Kirk's been pretty good lately, and you don't trust kickers. I put a lot of that loss on Zim yesterday. By the way, did you catch the end of regulation, by the way? Okay, no, it felt that's, like, the thing, that's the thing everyone was bitching about, and I didn't see any of it. Okay, and I'll try to get through this as fast as I can. Uh, you know, I wrote a column about this at KWSN.com. I pretty much expunged the, the column here, but um, but the last couple minutes. So there's uh, 23 seconds left. The Vikings have one timeout. They have cruised down the field. Kirk Cousins, second week in a row. My gosh, he has a little clutch in him. Uh, and they've gone 42 yards in 45 seconds. And they're at the 33. They just completed a nine-yard pass to Justin Jefferson. Okay, Great. Got some momentum here. One timeout. And Zimmer calls a timeout. You've got third and one. You've got two plays left. You only have one play before, you know, a Dan Bailey field mm-hmm. goal. If you don't, if you don't get the first down, you have to kick the field goal on the next play. Yeah. And and I'm just thinking the the worst thing that can happen if you just have a, besides a turn, even if you get a turnover, I mean, pretty much the worst thing that can happen if you don't get if if the worst thing that could happen is for the Vikings to have the ball last and it's a tie and it goes into overtime, which it did. That's the worst. Uh, If you decide to manage the clock correctly and take enough time off the clock to where there's none on it after Bailey's attempted his field goal. And I don't, I, it's inexplicable why he calls a timeout with 23 seconds left with that. Your, your last timeout left where you could run another play. You just got nine yards. You're dancing down the field, run another play, get that first down and then see what happens. Run a bunch of time off the clock, see how much closer you are for Dan Bailey, then call a timeout. Uh, instead, he calls a timeout. Mistake number one. And then, okay, you've got plenty of time on the timeout to figure out what you're going to do on third and one to get things a little closer for Dan Bailey, who has missed two extra points already today. He had just made a 48-yarder earlier in the quarter. But you're from 50. It's you know, You're not feeling very confident. Um, this could have been the one time where maybe play it safe. And just give it to Dalvin Cook. See if he breaks it for five or six yards. You're now you're looking at 42, 43 instead of 50. Um, or you could have one of those dink and dunk passes that you used far too often all game long instead of just bombarding the Jags. And instead, I don't know if this is, I don't know whose fault it is. Maybe it's Cousins on the reads. I don't know whose fault it is. But this, he tries to force a pass toward the goal line to Adam Thielen. Five seconds go off the clock. So now you have to kick a field goal. And, of course, you miss it. And now you have 18 seconds left uh, for the Jags, who only needed one 15-yard running play to almost kick a field goal to beat you, which would have been an embarrassing loss. That So Mike Zimmer's stubbornness with this offense, which sometimes is the winning formula, plus, uh, plus his it, – it's not, just, it's not a, just a Zimmer problem, Matt. We've seen it our whole lives with head coaches, especially in the NFL. Why they don't have an assistant coach just to watch the clock. Uh, it blows me away. So I think this, I think the loss had a lot to do with Zimmer is my point. And I I keep calling it a loss and it wasn't right. It'll be interesting to see if they open things up now a little bit because uh, not to make excuses for him, but this was a stretch of the schedule where we knew they knew they were playing a bunch of terrible teams and they had a legitimate chance, you know, to get back in the race. They should have beat Dallas and then they'd be, you know, sitting here at seven and five in even better shape, but I think we all knew it wasn't going to necessarily take a whole lot to beat Jacksonville, to beat Carolina. They should have beat Dallas. Um, Maybe Zimmer just kind of had this thinking that I'm not going to get too crazy. I'm going to try and win these games as conservatively as we can, because I just want to get through them. Um, I saw parts of his press conference yesterday. He sounded a little exasperated. 
Um, although, you know, it'd be nice if maybe he took a little bit more ownership on some of that rather yeah. than kind of implying that it was all on the players or whatever. But either way, my, the, the point I'm rambling towards is it's going to get harder now. You know, I, I don't know what to make of Tampa Bay. They've been a really weird team this year, obviously. Uh, but they're better than Jacksonville. They're better than Detroit. They're better than Dallas. Some of these other teams they've been playing now. Uh, so this is going to be tougher. They're probably not going to be able to beat them, you know, by running nothing but dink and dunk screen passes and quick slants and hitches and stuff and and, and relying on their defense because, you know, Tom Brady might come out and, and shit the bed and not play well, but he also might come out and look like 32-year-old Tom Brady and light him up. Uh, I think this is, I mean, it, it's obviously a huge game because they finally moved into the into the playoff picture officially and they can drop right back out of it, I would guess. But, you know, it, it gets tougher now. This is no longer one of these games where you just go, oh, they're going to win because look who's on the schedule. Um, and they could get knocked right back out of the playoff picture pretty quickly. So they just won't, you know, like I said, they're just not going to be able to use this overly conservative, we're going to win because we're playing someone crappy kind of formula that they've been using for the last month. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm just not, for yesterday, I'm not a win-is-a-win guy. I am more of a Bill Parcell says you're, you are who your record is. They're 6-6. Six and six. I think that's more of uh, an indictment on the NFC than it is on uh, a attaboy for the Vikings to get here to 6-6, six and six, even though if they started 1-5, obviously it's a testament to Zimmer, and it, and it probably has saved his job. If there was any question that he was still going to keep his job unless they lose the last four here and look just god awful doing it he probably still has a gig some people thought he was slipping from him early this season and you know the, the whole they they've kept it together i guess in that sense yes i hope they were holding things back <laughs> i hope they were holding things back uh, for that trip to tampa by the way um we're we're missing NFL football right now. Were you upset that we scheduled this at four? Or were you, did you have big plans to watch Washington and the Steelers today? I'll probably turn it on, but I'm not exactly <laughs> dying to. Yeah. What, what do you think of the quality of the NFL? I know it's a big question this year, but that's a statement where the Vikings are you know are, are sitting in on a playoff berth at six and six when they've looked like a, a clown act three games in a row against teams even worse than them. Um, overall, like if you're, when you're watching other games or are you entertained, does it, uh, does it look like a big mud bath to you? What do you think? I haven't been watching as many other games as normal. Um, partly cause you know, we've talked about this, the, the pandemic, I think so many of us thought that going all spring and summer without sports meant when we finally got it back, we were all going to, you know, race to watch as much sports as we could. And, oh my God, I'm going to, you know, just gobble up any live sports you could. I'm going to watch golf. I'm going to watch auto racing. I'm going to watch hockey. I'm going to watch all this stuff I never watched before. And it hasn't played out like that for almost anyone. You know, the, the ratings are consistently showing, but then even, you know, talking to people, you read stories where people are interviewed, you talk to your friends and people are like, I don't know, man, I'm just not as into it as much. Yeah. And part of that is because there's no fans in the stands. Part of that is because it doesn't, everything feels sort of not fake, but like every, every sports season that's happening during this pandemic, feels like there is a asterisk attached to it. And there probably should be, you know, I mean, the baseball season was very weird, you know, 60 games is like having a five game NFL season. Um, obviously, you know, players running in and out and games getting canceled. College football is a complete mess. The NFL hasn't had to cancel any games yet, but we're getting games on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and multiple games on Mondays yeah. and all this weird stuff. And it's kind of cool to have, you know, be able to watch NFL games on, on weird random days um, but the, the games don't seem great and it no. is hard to tell how much of it is, you know, because the fans aren't in it and the, maybe the players aren't, I, it, it, I just don't know, you know, it's yeah. just, you don't really know what you're watching and, uh, you know, the Steelers are 11 and 0 or whatever, but I saw some article the other day that said they're the worst undefeated team in NFL history. Yeah. Well, are they, are they, or does just everyone else suck or do they just not seem as good yeah. because the games aren't as fun? I mean, what's going on in the NFC East obviously is an embarrassment. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think the NFC North isn't much better. You know, the Vikings are, you know, are they a, a really good, bad team or are they a really bad, good team? You know, there's just so much, everyone's just kind of watching it going and shrugging their shoulders and going like, well, I'll watch it. Cause, cause it's there because yep. there's nothing else, but it just doesn't feel like what we're used to. And the NFL in particular, you know, 10 years ago, I can remember maybe not even 10 years ago, seven, eight years ago, I watched almost every NFL game on Sunday. You know, I watched the Vikings at noon and then I watched whoever was on at three and whoever was on at seven. And on Monday night, because the games were just so damn good 
Like there were so many games that were always going down to the wire and big plays made by superstar players. And it was just like, I just can't get enough of this. And over the course of the last few years, that's changed. I feel like, and it, you know, some of it has been a dearth of, of great quarterbacks. You know, some of it has been officiating and controversies that have, you know, contributed to games, you know, feeling like they don't go the way they're supposed to. There's been all this kind of stuff. And then you throw this pandemic on top of it. And yeah, it just doesn't feel like the NFL that we're used to. Don't be wrong. I'm glad that, that it's there, you know, Sundays in the middle of fall and winter with no NFL. I don't know what I do with myself. Um, but it just, there, there certainly isn't the emotional attachment or investment in it that there usually is. Yeah. I, I used to, I'm still a guy that likes to, uh, I like the red zone channel. I've had it at times in my life and haven't where they just tell you, okay, this is the game you should be watching right now. Here's what's going on, which works if you know, your team, in my case, the chiefs or the Vikings, because I, I watch and we talk about them. Uh, you know, I'm going to watch their full games. They're usually on. But I would first few weeks of this season where uh, the golf course I was working at here in Lenox, they had the uh, they had the red zone channel. They didn't have the ticket. They didn't have all the games. They had the they had the uh, red zone. And it was I was obsessed for a few weeks. And then a few weeks ago, Gilbert and I went out there and we've got the place to ourselves. The clubhouse is closed. I still have a key. So uh, it's great. Serve your own drinks, whatever. And uh uh, watch some NFL unfold, and especially those last two minutes of the early games all simultaneously. It's great because a lot of games are close. But then, like a few weeks ago, oops, uh, oh, <laughs> finally, my manager Steve discovered wow, nobody's really inhabited the clubhouse for a month, and we're still paying for our cable channels. So he canceled it. It wasn't on. And at first, I was like, what a bummer. I was looking at that. This is my afternoon. And then mm-hmm. the last three weeks, I haven't, like, for one, you know, again, I encourage people to go to the Gateway Lounge if you want to see them all unfold at one time. It's awesome theater all at once. But uh, there, for me, there hasn't been a huge desire to, uh, you know, to watch as many. And then the primetime games you speak of that we all get for free, it's kind of inconsistent where uh, if it's must-see TV or not. Like tonight, it's, I think, the Niners and the Bills. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Even the Broncos and the Chiefs. I'm a Chiefs fan. Of course, I watched the whole thing. It was a bad game. The Broncos were bad coming in. Uh, Chiefs kind of slept walk through it uh, because they, they could. So to your, I, I, I agree with what you say. It just doesn't seem as, as big or exciting or as high quality this year. And by the way, last we'll leave on this. Carson Wentz, I know you at least keep an eye on the Eagles from time to time because Dallas Goddard is playing there. Nate Gary, although injured, is playing there. And uh, boy, they are, they've got the albatross of his $35 million. And he's, he's had to play with tomato cans as his weapons and his linemen. But uh, they finally brought in Jalen Hurts, and he didn't look too bad against the Packers yesterday. Uh, and, and Goddard is still, at, at the very least, a guy, his, his safety valve that he can count on, what, five catches, 66 yards yesterday. Our Dakota's guy, Carson Wentz, what do you, what, what do you think? Do you think he's a hopeless cause? or? Uh, I mean, he, he can't be a hopeless cause just because there's too much ability there. Yeah. I mean, you know, that rookie year, his first year starter, whatever it was, you know, where he was an MVP candidate before he got hurt. I mean, yeah, he had a better supporting cast around him, and maybe some of it was – luck or just the rest of the league not really knowing him or whatever but like the guy has tools he's got a cannon for an arm he's a big big dude but a big dude that can move he's got athletic ability you know he's he he looks like he was the total package and I wasn't that surprised that he played so well early I didn't think he was going to be an MVP candidate but I did think that he had the tools to be a guy who was you know a quality starter in the league for eight to ten years and then maybe a backup for five or six more um, now all of a sudden, like you said, that ki- that contract hasn't even kicked in yet, has it? Doesn't the extension start next year? I think so. Yeah. Maybe. And then so he's suddenly like right as he's becoming the worst starting quarterback in the NFL, they have to start paying him thirty million a year. I mean, you talk about the Kirk Cousins contract. All of a sudden, that doesn't look bad at all. Yeah. And I just don't know what you do if you're the Eagles. You can't really. They can bench him this week. They can go to Jalen Hurts and say, you know, we just got to try something. The team needs a spark. You know, this is isn't working. We're going to try and fix him, bring this other guy. You can do that. That's fine. But you know how I'm, I, I don't know exactly how much of that contract is guaranteed, but I know it's a ton of it. They're stuck with him and they got it. Mm-hmm. They're just going to have to, to fix him. And Doug Peterson better make that a priority uh, or else they're going to replace him with someone. And that's going to be the top priority of the new coach. It's like, Hey, we got 128 million sunk into this kid. We need someone to fix him because we can't get rid of him. He's an albatross around our neck. 
So either Doug Peterson fixes him or they're going to fire him to, to bring in someone else who can because they're stuck with him. Yeah, well, they haven't been the same since Frank Reich, who's been pretty good with the Colts, left after that Super Bowl year. He was the offensive coordinator. I guess he actually called the plays, even though Big Balls Doug is given credit with that uh, Philly special and all that. So, guess mm-hmm. hey, guess what? We are going to uh, we're going to sneak it in there. We are going to finish shy of a full hour. This is a good place to end it, unless you have anything else you'd like to uh, unload. Terrible ending again, as usual. Uh, thank you very little. And uh, <laughs> we'll be back next week. Nobody's listening anyway. For Matt Zimmer, I'm John Gaskins. Goodbye. And here's that clip we use every week that we love. Why are you laughing? That was a terrible outro. Fuck <laughs> <Lock> you. <laughs> you guys need a round of drinks? Uh, yes. Yeah.